taken from the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 to 20. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are heading for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. If you were asked to name the most joy-filled person you have ever, ever met, who would it be? Anyone in your family? Anyone among your friends? Joy-filled. Wow, you look at them and you just see how their hearts are filled with joy. Eventually, we will we'll all come to say, well, Jesus, of course, I know. And if you do a quick flyover of his life, you get blown out of the water. And he was a bit of a rebel. He never sinned. But he lived his life by a set of rules that his culture did not approve of. Nevertheless, as the book of Hebrews says, that Jesus endured the cross, remember the words, for the joy set before him. And he never lost his joy all through life in the midst of, of uh, betrayal and poverty and injustice and loneliness and suffering and slander and even death. He lived without the things that we typically associate with joy, wealth, fame, comfort. Yet he is the freest person, the freest person who's ever lived. Following his conversion, Paul's conversion, Paul patterned his life after Jesus. And he lived a bit of a rebel life too. You read his writings. He was single, he was broke, he was often homeless, and so hated that he was run out of more than a few towns. And he wrote the book of Philippians while he was sitting on the floor of a filthy Roman jail, <clears throat> alone in his cell, flat broke, tired, hungry, sick, abandoned, and looking at the prospect of having his head chopped off, Paul sat down to write a letter, and in typical rebel fashion, he wrote about joy and how it can be found in the darkest and most painful seasons of life if we have the Spirit of Jesus. Now, I'd love it if you'd open your Bible this morning, you're going to need it this morning, uh, or your iPhone or your Samsung Galaxy S4 or Whatever you're armed with this morning, 
uh, and follow with me as we turn our attention to the book of Philippians. You know, it's always dangerous to have those gadgets with you. I mean, they're good and they're bad. I mean, I had, had mine with me during summer and while I was listening to other pastors. I won't go any further, but it's, it's just, they can be distractive. And uh, if you see your neighbor checking their email or playing a game, just clear your throat a little bit. <coughs> just go like that. <coughs> That'll signal to everybody. <laughs> Now, the book of Philippians has been, always been one of my favorite books of the Bible. Paul seems to have a happy face when he writes this letter. He's an optimist as he writes. So things must have been really good at, at this period of time in Paul's life. Well, I know you know that the opposite's true. Paul is not writing from a penthouse. He is writing from a prison cell. So things were not all that great on Paul's end of the pen. He's in, he's in Rome. He's waiting for his trial and very uncertain about his future. He may be facing execution soon. He doesn't know. He's certainly not free to go about his regular ministry. He is under guard in Rome. And yet this book is filled with the most positive, positive descriptions of joy. It's a great book. We could title it uh, Unexplained, Unexplainable Joy. And there is a bit of a story of how how Paul got to Philippi. He actually wanted to go to Asia Minor, you remember back in the book of Acts? And you see, Paul was on his second missionary journey with Silas, and we have to assume in the book of Acts that Luke is also there. Uh, the Bible says that, that Paul came to Asia Minor, and the Spirit of God said, no, can't go there. Big barricade, you cannot go there. Instead of the great commission, Paul receives the great prohibition. And Paul was thinking, I'm sure he could establish a church there, and he could have strengthened the disciples in Asia Minor, he could have ordained some elders there, but the Spirit said no. Then in Acts chapter 16, verse 7, Paul decides he wants to go to Bithynia. And the Spirit of God once again gives him the great prohibition, saying, no, you can't go. Finally, Paul winds up in Troas. How do you handle Troas when you wanted Asia Minor? That was on your heart. Or Bithynia. Troas is that little place on the other side of the road. Troas is the place that doesn't even have a drugstore in it. You're out in the boondocks, a little old whistle stop on the road to nowhere. And no one's going to know you there. Paul was in Troas. But if you're going to get to Philippi, where God is calling you, if you're going to hear the Macedonian man say, come over and help us, you have to spend some time at Troas. You have to go to the backside of the desert to hear God speak from a burning bush. Remember Moses? Some of us want Philippi, but we don't want to spend any time in Troas. If you're too big for Troas, God can't use you in Philippi. The greatest challenge we will face is God opening one door that we must go through while other doors are more appealing or more tempting and we say, oh, for me, I think I'll go this way. We could do good works in Asia Minor 
and Bithynia. But there's one door we must go through, and it's God's door, and sometimes we see him directing us to that one door. God will close some other doors as we listen, and he will point us to the place where he wants us. Now, there are four chapters in, in uh, the book of Philippians, four chapters that instruct us how to live uh, victoriously and joyously in the midst of the normal challenges of life. And some of those challenges can be real tough. So could I move you to four quick thoughts, one from each chapter that underscores this theme. Chapter one, joy is living on the edge of whatever happens. Joy is living on the edge of whatever happens. Of course, the key verse in chapter 1 is uh, verse 21. For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, when you face your mortality, you become reflective. How many of you know that from personal experience? When you face your mortality, you start to become very reflective. Paul is very reflective. It's true, he might have only had a very short time and his head would roll. He doesn't know, and he's okay with that. He simply wants his life to count and to be honoring to God whether he lives or whether he dies. It's not like, oh, just take me and let's get out of here. No, he's happy to stay. He would like to stay, and he would like to carry on the ministry. So you can picture him. He's on the edge of his seat. But it's okay, whatever happens. It's not whatever. It's whatever, Lord, you want. I'm there, and I'm with you. And if you glance back at verse 12, chapter 1, you see why whatever works for him. And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Christ. You know what's happening? Nero, the emperor, had commanded that every few hours, one of the finest young men in the whole Roman Empire from the elite, who constituted Nero's personal bodyguard, would be brought and chained to the Apostle Paul. So there'd be a rotation. I mean, now we would pay, we would pay, yes. We would pay big bucks to be chained to the Apostle Paul. As long as we had a pen and an eight and a half by 11 notepad, we'd say, what an experience. I get this three times a week, three hours with Paul, and I'd be making notes and we'd be thinking about leadership and and, and spiritual development and, and how, how Paul is learning to hear the voice of God and, and all, all of that. Well, Paul used that opportunity to instruct these bodyguards in the things of Christ. And one by one they were coming to Christ and there was being formed a cadre of young men who came to know Christ and become his disciples. Have you ever noticed the last verse in the book of Philippians? Uh, Chapter 4, verse 22. And all the rest of God's people send you greetings to especially those in Caesar's household. Those, no doubt, are the young men that Paul has led to Christ. I love it. You see, joy is living on the edge of whatever happens. 
And in that, seeing how God is at work. Paul had a great ministry in Rome, in prison. Where's your prison? You probably have one. Where's your ministry? It can be anywhere. It can even be hard, but it can be effective. And joy is on the edge of whatever happens. I told you last week about my friend Scott in Michigan, the pastor who has ME and now later diagnosed with Lyme disease. And remember he said, I wouldn't trade these past years, these past 15 years for anything. And I say in my heart, what? After all he's been through, exhausted every day of his life, exhausted. Just got to go lay down. And yet he has this amazing joy. And then I was just thinking, of, you, do you know what his last name is? His surname is actually Joy. He really fits his name, Scott Joy. And he has this incredible joy in his heart. Paul knew that he had to live out what he wrote to the Romans several years ago. Before that, it's much easier to write Romans 8.28 when you're not in Rome. For he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, when Paul wrote that, he wasn't in Rome. But now when he is in a Roman prison, does he still believe that God continues to work all things together for good to those who love God? And it's evident that he does. Paul says, things are going to work out for my deliverance. I'm not sure if I'm going to stay with you. I'm not sure if I'm going to take a quick exit. But whatever happens, it's going to work out for my deliverance. Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish, Danish theologian, is right when he says that life has to be lived forward, but it can only be understood backward. Life has to be lived forward, but it can only be understood backward. I mean, there are some things that happen in our ministries and in our lives and in our families in which we do not see the hand of God. And we just don't understand. But if you live long enough in some of those scenarios, and if you look far enough, you may begin to see why God has done some of those things. And Paul lived a whatever-happens kind of life, which is to say he trusted Christ, he found joy in simply being filled with the Holy Spirit, and experienced his fullness as he lived every day, saying, Lord, whatever comes, I know who you are, I know you love me, and I'll just go with that. So theme number one, the joy of trusting God for whatever comes your way. Chapter 2 is the joy of downward mobility. And the, the theme in chapter 2 is localized in the fifth verse. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. The issue in chapter 2 of Philippians is the whole concern about disunity. Disunity was threatening the body of believers in Philippi. Yes, it was a great church. It really was. And Paul loved it. I think it was one of his favorite churches too. But it was also a very human bunch of people who make, made up the church. I mean, just like every church. 
We're just human. And it can happen in, in any church. It has a devastating effect when there is disunity in the body. And people get irritated and great on one another. And people see things differently. And there are cliques and divisions which are detrimental to the life and vitality of a church. And that's why Paul writes chapter 2. He tells the Christians in Philippi that if they want to experience the best of God, they'll need to be carefully seeking after unity. So he says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And then he illustrates with the life of Jesus Christ. I mean, who better to exemplify humility than Jesus? We know the word upward mobility, don't we? We are not so keen on downward mobility. But that's the term that looks us in the face all through life. Downward mobility. Jesus emptied himself of all that he held of value in his life. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He became a man. He gave up divine privilege. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Talk about downward mobility. There was a story in Reader's Digest some years ago about a flight being canceled due to bad weather. And one solitary agent was trying to rebook all the travelers. I mean, the schedules had been all messed up. And one passenger way back in the line became very impatient and he pushed his way up to the front and slammed his ticket down on the counter and he said, I have to be on this flight and it better be first class. The agent politely said, I'm sorry, sir. I will help you as soon as I can. There's a line up here. You're at the back of the line. I need to take care of these other people first. The man became angry and shouted. He said, do you have any idea who I am? Without hesitating, the agent picked up the loudspeaker microphone, said to the hundreds of people in the terminal, may I have your attention, please? We have a passenger who is at the gate, and he does not know who he is. <laughs> Talk about pouring gas on the fire. If anyone can help him find his identity, please come to the gate. Man backed off and back to the back of the line. I mean, regardless of who the man was, whether he was rich or famous or a little bit of both, he certainly didn't have the respect of the people at the terminal that day. It's hard to respect someone who considers themselves the most important person in the room. Jesus existed before the world was created, and yet he stepped downward, always downward, not thinking of himself, but of us. Isn't it incredible, friends, that joy flows to your heart when you step down? And it doesn't flow when you step up. That's how God made us. Joy flows to your heart when you step down. And sometimes it becomes a gusher. Joy all over the place because you step down. Joy is downward mobility. Isn't that just the opposite of everything the world teaches us? The joy of the Lord. 
understanding who I am in Christ. That it's not important to have the limelight. That it's not important to put somebody else down. In fact, my joy comes in serving Christ and serving others and having the mind and the attitude of Jesus. So the joy of trusting Christ, whatever happens, joy is living on the edge of whatever. And secondly, joy is downward mobility, having the right attitude, living with humility. Then chapter 3, joy is experiencing the life of Christ, even suffering. Verses 10 and 11 are powerful. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. When Christ rose from the dead, there was a mighty power at work. And that's the kind of power that Christ brings to us. Amazing power to strengthen us. I mean, you can walk through a lot of stuff in life when you have that power in your life. And Paul says, I want to know Christ that way. And he's willing to enter into suffering because uh, he is a follower of Christ. And if that brings honor to Christ, that's his heart and that's his prayer. At the end of chapter 1, we have these words from Paul, verse 29, For you have been given not only the, spirit, the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. And uh, that was so well modeled in Paul and Silas's life uh, when they were in the Philippian prison. And that jailer came to faith in Christ because he saw Paul and Silas modeling suffering. And Paul is reminding us to go the distance, that we have a game to win. And I know that many are playing hurt in the game, but they're pressing forward. They're pressing forward. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our well-being and he shouts to us in our suffering. And I found that true in my own experience that when everything's going along beautifully, I can become somewhat immune, a little distant from the leadings of God. But when I'm in trouble, I not only have God's attention, but God has my attention. Chapter 4 is the joy of contentment. The key verses in chapter 4 are uh, verses 11 and 12. Not that I was ever in need, for I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it was with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. Pastor Nord passed on to me this little story last week, and uh, as I looked at it, it's written by Rick Warren. I thought it really applies to what I want to say this week. Uh, Rick Warren wrote a little article, a devotional, and he said, at some point you have to decide that enough is enough. How do you know when enough is enough? Someone asked Howard Hughes, how much do you need? And he said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And Rick Warren writes, he said, I've come to the decision that when the purpose-driven life became the best-selling book in the world for three years, that brought in tens of millions of dollars. I knew it was a bestseller, but I didn't realize the kind of income that he realized. Tens of millions of dollars. He said, Kay and I could have retired and bought an island in the Pacific and had them serving us drinks with little umbrellas in it. And I could have spent the rest of my life working on my tan. But is that the purpose of life? No, it's not. He said, so what did I do? I kept on working. Why? 
I'm not working to make money for myself. In fact, I said, Lord, what do you want me to do with all this money? It's your money, not mine. And God said, go read your book. <laughs> so I did. And I only had to read the first line to get what he meant. It's not about you. When you write a book and the first line is, it's not about you, and it makes tens of millions of dollars, you've got to figure it's not for you. He said, so we spent the next four years having a lot of fun, giving all that money away all around the world. Why did we do it? Because God gave us the skills to have money so we could share it with others. Contentment is found in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And that's the context of this passage. Paul is saying, look, I, I could be in a prison or whatever, but I've learned the secret that I can do all things through Christ because Christ is so good. It doesn't make a lot of sense to some people. Man, are, are you content living in that situation? I mean, your family might be going through a very difficult time, yet you have found joy in the midst of that. Christ is enough for you, and that's awesome. You get it. That's how you can tell if somebody gets it. When things are difficult, and they say, that's fine, that's okay, we're making it. Or when you have a ton of stuff and it doesn't matter. Christ is really everything to them. Have you learned the secret? Paul talks about here in Philippians chapter 4, the joy of contentment.